The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, My brother, my mother, and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is God's word. Our sermon title this morning is simply uh, titled, Listen Up. Listen Up. Or... As you see there at the end of verse 8 where Jesus is speaking, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's actually one word in the original language where Jesus is basically saying with extreme emphasis, you need to pay attention right now to the words that are being said and being spoken on my end. I put out on Slack as an aid to hopefully help assist you that in this little two-chapter emphasis that Luke is putting on this theme of salvation, that Luke has not only been showing us the heart of salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's showing us how people respond to these things. And this morning, we actually have the second response that Luke wants us to see concerning how people hear the gospel, hear the good news word of the kingdom of God as being proclaimed by Jesus and how they respond to it. The main idea that we're going to see this morning comes down to this, that there is a right response to the Savior's salvation. There is a right way to respond to the news that Jesus is a great Savior who saves great sinners. And what you're going to see is that woven throughout these 21 verses, there is a theme of hearing and listening and obeying and doing the Word of God. And so the right response comes down to this, hear the Word of Jesus and obey it. Hear the Word and obey it. Simply hearing, Jesus is going to say, is not enough. The question is, what are you doing with what you have heard? That is the right response to the Savior's great salvation. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to uh, make these things clear there is a very familiar parable in front of us. The parable of the sower, or your Bible might say the parable of the soils. Like probably the most famous parable that Jesus speaks. It's a common parable that we all know. And the danger right now for you and for me is that familiarity is going to breed a little bit of monotony. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I know this one already. I've heard plenty of sermons. Don't need to pay attention right now. And we are flirting with the very danger that Jesus is going to warn before us of being hearers who just let sound waves reverberate through the air, hit our ear, and then it just dies on the surface of our heart. And we don't become listeners who seek to understand. Now, ultimately, what we need is the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. Amen? And so I'm going to ask that you join me in this endeavor. Ask the Holy Spirit 
to take up the words of Samuel. If you remember in the Old Testament, Yahweh was speaking to him. Eventually, he is told and instructed, and he comes to the place where he says, the next time you hear Yahweh speak to you, this is how you need to respond. You need to respond like this. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Do you have a listening heart this morning? As you're going to see, Satan loves to swoop in and steal the seed of God's word. I mean, it's literally right there in the text. It's verse 12. And I mean this when I say this. Satan is going to try like hell to make sure you do not listen and understand the word of God this morning. So what is your hope? If you're like, well, I'm just going to bootstrap this thing and really sit forward and pay attention. I'm going to take another slurp of caffeine so I can really pay attention. You're leaning on the flesh. What you need is the power of the Holy Spirit to perk you up so you can fight in His strength. You are weak. He is strong. And we need Him to help us when we say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, help me hear and listen with an ear of understanding to what you're saying and as we saw last week the lord is faithful and he can and will do it amen so let's pray for these things lord we are here to worship you we've worshiped you through song and now the worship of you is going to continue through the preaching of your word our aim is to bring you glory father our aim is to see jesus christ the son in all his glory receive the glory that he is worthy to receive. Holy Spirit, we recognize our deep weakness, our absolute need for your power and for your sufficient strength to assist us with the desire of our heart. Maybe as, as, as microscopic as the desire is, there's a, des- a desire in our heart and say, Lord, speak. I'm your servant. I'm listening. I need to hear what you have to say from your word this morning. My desire might be the size of a microscopic dot, but the desire is there nonetheless. And so, Spirit, would you fan this into flame and tune my ear to hear the word of God this morning so that I might not just be one who hears, but one who goes in obedience, and does what he hears. Lord Jesus, help us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. In line with what you've just heard me say, I think a good question to put in front of you, I'm going to ask this question in two different ways, and it might just be something if you're a note taker or something mentally to load in the front of your mind as we steer our way through these 21 verses comes down to this. Here's the two questions. How careful are you when you hear the Word of God. How careful are you when you hear the Word of God? Do you approach it loose? Do you approach it willy-nilly? Do you just sort of phase in and out? Or when the Word of God is before you in your copy of Scripture, when the Word of God is being preached to you, taught to you, how careful are you when you hear the Word of God? I think you can take that exact same idea and you can ask it in another way, and it comes to us like this. Here's the question. What do you do with God's Word once you have heard it? The careful idea and the obedience-doing idea Jesus is going to smash together before us this morning. 
He's going to show us that people can have any number of interactions with God. People can listen to God's Word and podcasts. You can go to YouTube. You can go to Google. You can go to community group. You can go to a discipling group. You can sit and hear a sermon like you're hearing this morning. Interactions with the Word of God are numerous and plenty, but the question that Jesus is asking us, forcing us in a sense to wrestle with is this, how do I respond? Respond to the word once I have heard the word. In these 21 verses before us, the issue at stake has everything to do with hearing and not just hearing God's word, but how do we rightly respond to what we have heard? Just notice how often in these 21 verses, Jesus calls to attention this command to listen up, this command to pay attention and to hear. You can look at verse 8 and you see it where Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You scan down to verses 12, verse 13, and verse 14. These verses are describing the various responses of those who have heard the word of God. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, hear the word and hold it fast. Verse 18, take care then how you hear. Verse 21, my mother and my brothers. In other words, the Jesus family trait, the family trait of those who describe the DNA of those who've been redeemed looks like this. They are those who hear the word of God and do it. So notice this thread of hearing God's word and doing it is what stitches all of these elements in verse 21 together. Remember this, Luke is doing something and he has told us what he is doing all the way back in Luke chapter one. He says, I'm writing in such a way so that you can have certainty, certainty about the gospel, certainty about Christ, certainty about who he is, certainty about what he came to do. Luke now in chapter seven and eight is writing in such a way so that you and I can be certain about the con of salvation, certain about the content of how sinners can be saved through the Savior who has done everything that needs to be done so that we might find the forgiveness of our sins. He's writing so that we can be certain about the content of salvation and not only certain that sinners can be saved by grace through faith in Him, but also certain that there is a wrong way and certain that there is a right way to respond to the Savior's great salvation. Now, Luke has already revealed the wrong way to respond when he showed us that many people reject Jesus because of their unwillingness to repent of their sin. If you remember, that's what we preached two sermons ago in our series through Luke. It was that whole John the Baptist interaction and people refusing to come to him for that baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and the Pharisees. And so he was showing us, right? There's one way that people respond. They hear the things of Jesus. They grasp the things of Jesus. It's not an intellectual thing that's going on. They just simply come to the place where they draw the conclusion. I've heard what you've said. I understand what you've said. I still reject Jesus because I do not want to repent for the forgiveness of my sins. That's one way to interact with the salvation that we find from the Savior. But now Luke is leading us to see Jesus' backside of that invitation. That there is a right way to come and respond. 
Before us this morning, Luke is displaying that the right response to the Savior's salvation is to hear the word of Jesus and obey it. It's to hear the good news invitation from Jesus that you can have eternal life, that you can be saved, that you can go from blindness to sight, from death to life. And this is the call of the word of the gospel as proclaimed by Jesus for you and me to hear. Listen, how we hear the good news word of God is proclaimed by Jesus. And then how we respond to this word determines everything. And I'm not saying that hyperbolically. I'm not. How we hear the word of God. And then how we take care to respond to it or not respond to it. It determines everything. This is why we must listen up, says Jesus. This is why we must pay attention. This is why we must hear the good news word of Jesus. And that is point number one before us. It's the command on the lips of Christ to listen up and hear the good news word of Jesus. That's what's going on in verses one through three. So turn on your copy of scripture. Turn to your copy of scripture there to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Notice what Luke writes here in the Word of God. He says this, Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages. What is he doing? Well, he's going around proclaiming. He's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This is word language. This is the word of God on the lips of Jesus. It's a proclamation that sinners who are part of Satan's dark kingdom can be ransomed, redeemed, saved, pulled out of, transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son by the power of the savior who has the authority to bring salvation to sinners. And this is what he's going around calling people and inviting them to, to hear this good news word of the kingdom of God and then to obey it, repent, come to him so that they might be saved. But he continues, notice, and the 12, that's the 12 disciples were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Here's a list of them, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them, Jesus and the twelve, out of their means. Now, lest we forget, we need to constantly remember Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is on a mission. Later in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to point blank tell us what his mission is about. It's Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus is going to say, I, as the Son of Man, have come to do these two things. I've come to seek the lost, and I've come to save the lost. This is what I am about in a single sentence. Thus, it makes complete sense then for us here in Luke chapter 8 to find Jesus going through cities, going through villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is doing what he says he is about. He's not a hypocrite. There's integrity in the life of Christ. He says, this is what I'm going to do. This is my purpose. And then you find him doing the very thing he says he's going to be about. This is his consuming priority, seeking the lost, saving the lost. And it comes as no great surprise. If you go back into his sermon that he preached in the Nazareth synagogue, what did we learn? 
We learned that Jesus was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, good news to the captive, good news to the blind, good news to the oppressed. He later told the people at the end of Luke chapter 4, here is what I must do. Notice the mustness language on the lips of Jesus. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Why, Jesus? Why must you do this thing? Here's the reason why. I was sent for this purpose. This is what I'm about, and this is what I'm going to do. And so now, as we see this in verse 1, you begin to roll into this little short list of people that he's mentioning here. And notice, it not only does he mention the 12 disciples, but he mentions these women who were also following Jesus and serving Jesus. They were on the ministry team. They were helping Jesus out. And what Luke is doing, I believe, in verses 2 and 3 is he's giving us a heads up that as Jesus went about proclaiming the good news word of the kingdom of God, you are starting to see already right here through the 12 and through these women that there are people who are rightly responding to what they're hearing from Jesus. They're hearing the word of God being spoken. They're hearing the word of the good news of God's kingdom that you can be a citizen of this kingdom with Christ as your king, knowing the good life under the rule and reign of the good king. And people are hearing this and obeying what they hear by submitting themselves, denying self, dying to self, and turning to Jesus for salvation that can only be found in him. So while some are playing games with Jesus' word, remember, that's what we saw in response number one. The little kids, remember, the, I want to play the game funerals. Okay, we'll play you the funeral song. I know I want to play the game marriage. They want to play the marriage song. Do you remember all that? People are playing games with Jesus' words. Many do. Then, many do now. They reject Jesus by refusing to repent of their sins, but what we see is that there are men such as the twelve, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and others who stand as examples of those who hear the word of God and do it and obey it. But what was becoming evident as Luke is taking us by the hand and leading us through the life of Jesus, what is becoming evident to the disciples, what is becoming evident to the women who are following Jesus, what becomes evident for you and what becomes evident for me is that those who hear the word of God, many do not do it. They don't obey it. There are some who are hearing God's good news word and responding rightly with obedience, but there are many who are not. There, there's a mixture, a whole broad spectrum of mixed responses to the word of God. Have you seen this before in your own lives? Yeah? Talking to people, pointing them to the gospel, sharing the gospel, opening up God's word. It could be to your children in your home, the neighbor across the street, the coworker that you work 40 plus hours with. It could be your spouse. It could be family members. There are a thousand and one mixed ways and responses to respond wrongly to the word, and Jesus is going to help us understand why this is the case. You see, the question is, why? Why are there so many mixed responses to the good news word of God that sinners can be saved by the Savior? 
the answer from Jesus comes down to this. Simply hearing God's Word is not enough. Just hearing God's Word is not enough. So Jesus turns to a parable, a story, to help us understand why simply hearing Sound waves go through the air into our ear, and just hearing God's Word is not enough. And so he turns to a parable that comes with the command to listen up, to hear the Word of God and hold it fast. And that's what we see in point number two. Jesus is calling us. It's the command there in verse 8 to pay attention, to listen up, to not just be one who hears but listens with an ear to understand what is being said about the gospel of God's salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear this word and hold it fast. That's sort of an old-timey way of saying cling to it, grasp to it. This is, I'm on the Titanic, the ship is sinking, and I'm about to to slip off into the deeps, but there comes a life draft or here comes a life preserver and what you don't do in that moment, in that situation, is reach out for the life preserver like this. Just like with one little finger and just sort of like limply, like sort of touch it. No, what do you do? You, You grasp it. You lay hold of it. You cling to it for dear life because you recognize in this sense salvation of my physical body depends on the grasp that I have on this thing. In a similar kind of way, Jesus is saying, listen, those who are right responders to the gospel do this. They hear the word of God and they don't just simply let it go in and out, but as it comes to them, as they receive it, their hearts are awakened, their eyes are opened, their minds by the Spirit are turned on to understand this is where salvation for my soul is found. It is found in what Jesus is saying about him being the Savior who has the authority and the power to save sinners. I am a sinner. I need to be saved. And so I'm going to lay hold of this thing and grip it and cling to it. And I'm not going to let this thing go. Why? Because salvation is found. In Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. So look in your Bible, starting there in verse 4. And when a great crowd, Luke continues, was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, here's what Jesus began to say in a parable. Notice that there's no church, church growth strategy on the lips of Jesus. Jesus isn't going to try to tickle the ears of people, but he's going to speak a, a simple story known as a parable before them. What does he say? A sower went out to sow a seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, hear, pay attention. Notice he doesn't say, he who has ears, let him hear. All of us have ears, at least I think we do. (laughs) Apologies to you if you're here, minus one ear or two, two ears hanging off the side of your cabeza, all right? Jesus doesn't say, if you got ears, pay attention. You know, he has ears to hear. 
to grasp, to understand what's being said before us right now. So as Luke continues to unfold the life and ministry of Jesus, we learn that great crowds were increasingly becoming a feature of Jesus' public ministry. He's going from town to town. People are seeing miracles. He's meeting people's needs. People who are sick are being healed. All these sorts of things are drawing a vast crowd of people. The numbers are increasing, but notice this. Numbers can be extremely deceptive, can they not? Numbers can be deceptive. Why? Because no one knows what is really going on in the heart of those who are in the crowd. Right? Whether an auditorium of 5,000 people or you find yourself in a room of 15 people, a teacher quickly comes to realize that while they may have control over the words coming out of their mouth as the teacher, they also quickly realize that they do not have control over the hearts of their listeners. Any teachers ever been here before, experienced that little, that little one? It's like, I, I, I know I'm speaking words to you, but I'm pretty sure it's going like this, in and out. It's not going in and down. There's something that's missing here. The rub being that while the audience may be hearing your words as your vocal cords vibrate sound waves through the air, there is no guarantee on the part of the teacher that those who are hearing your words are doing so with a listening ear to understand that actually leads to change. It's just easy to turn the Word of God into Charlie Brown's teacher. Do you know what I'm talking about? How did Charlie Brown's teacher talk? For some of us, that's how we approach the Word of God. It's that thing in the background. It's the white noise. It's the vacuum that mom runs in the background. When it's just like that. It's just there, mildly annoying, but it's nothing I'm paying attention to. For some of us, that's how we approach Sunday morning gathering. My voice is the white noise in the background. And it's not that it's just my voice. It's because ah, that word of God said, man, I'm hearing what he's saying. But it's just simply passing through in one ear and out the other. You see, there's no guarantee for any teacher, preacher, that listening ears are listening with an ear of understanding that actually leads to obedience and application and change. Now, Jesus is a good teacher, and Jesus understands this. So Jesus is surveying this giant crowd, and he's recognizing that there's a whole broad mixture of people before him. There are people who genuinely care, people who genuinely are seeking to know what salvation and the forgiveness of their sins are. And so Jesus is going to speak a parable to them. And Jesus is about to say, as I'm about to explain, is that when a parable is spoken, it's going to have sort of like this filtration device, this teaching device. It's going to land on the hearts of those who say, man, I don't know. I think Jesus is drawing me to him. I don't know. I think he just might be the savior. I do know this. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And this parable that Jesus is talking, like I don't quite understand all the intricacies of it, but instead of pushing me away, it's pulling me towards him. I must go to him and find out what he means because I really do think salvation is found in him. There's some like that in the crowd that are sitting in front of Jesus. There's a whole bunch of other people who are just here like, I don't know, you know, maybe Jesus can do a little something for me. Maybe Jesus will be sort of like a divine genie in the bottle. Maybe he'll just grant a few of my wishes. Man, I sure hope he pulls off that whole fish and loaves thing again. That was pretty sweet. You know, my cupboards are a little bare. 
Can he just do a little song and dance again? Can he just do a little miracle again? Can he do these little things again? And they're not necessarily there because they have a desire to hear and understand and find somebody. They're there because they're like, I think, I think he might be the king who can overthrow Herod. I think he might be the one who can come and oust Caesar out of his seat. And I'm going to foist on Jesus my perceptions of who he should be. And Jesus says, I speak in parables to them too. Because when someone shows up asking me to do a little song and dance according to their prejudiced opinions of what they think I should be, I'm going to lay a parable on them. And they're going to respond probably like this. I didn't come here for that kind of Jesus. I don't want that kind of Jesus who speaks like this and acts like this, who gives out some little quaint sayings about parables, about farmers sowing seeds. I'm out. I'm going to disappear. And they just fade off into the distance. You see, Jesus is a good teacher. He understands these sorts of things. This is why he challenges his listeners and at the same time turns around and enables his disciples to make sense of what is going on all through the teaching of this parable. That's what's going on when you look down at verses 9 and 10. When you look down at this little aside, this little, this little uh, understanding that we get of what's going on, you see this interaction. Verses 9 and 10, when the disciples asked him, Jesus, what the parable meant. So they heard Jesus speak the parable. They look and say, Jesus, what, what were you talking about? He responds to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. He's saying this to the twelve. But notice what Jesus says here. I mean, this is something that will keep you up at night, thinking on what he's talking about and wrestling with it. But for others, they, these secrets of the kingdom of God, I speak them in parables. Why? So that, now he quotes Isaiah 6, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In saying this, Jesus is going back to that famous interaction that we all love with Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 sees the temple. He's in the temple. The hem of the robe of the living God is there that just completely unzips Isaiah, undoes him. Woe is me, woe is me. Like he's standing before a holy God. You guys remember, remember that whole Isaiah 6 interaction? Jesus is quoting from that chapter and from that interaction right now. If you remember in this famous chapter, Isaiah has that radical encounter with the holy God. He is then cleansed and redeemed by this holy God. And then if you remember, this holy God turns around and commissions Isaiah to speak God's word to God's people. But in the same breath, where God is speaking to Isaiah and says, I've cleansed you, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, I'm giving you a message now to go and take to my people... What you need to know, though, is this, Isaiah, is that the preaching of God's word, this message in which I've given to you, the message when you speak it, it's actually going to have a dual effect on the hearts of people. It's going to bring salvation, in other words, to those who have an ear to hear. Isaiah, you're going to go preaching and some are going to hear it. If you go and read Isaiah chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, it's a, it's a really incisive understanding into the sin-loving heart of the people of Israel. And Isaiah needs to know, you're going to go preach to those exact same people. There's going to be some people in the crowd whose hearts will be pierced, whose eyes will be opened, and this message of salvation will land on them like good soil, and the seed of salvation 
will grow in their hearts. But we also need to know is that this exact same message, this gospel message you're going to preach, it's going to bring judgment to those who do not have ears to hear. It's going to land on their hearts, and it's actually going to harden their hearts. They're going to say, I don't want that kind of God. I don't want anything to do with him in the way that you're talking about, Isaiah. And in a nutshell, Jesus' quote of Isaiah 6 tells us that he understands his preaching ministry to operate in the exact same way. So as Jesus proclaims and brings the good news of the kingdom of God, he says it's like a sower sowing in a field. It's like a farmer has a bag draped around him, a bunch of seeds in it. The farmer goes out in the field and starts doing this. Sowing seeds, tossing them out into the soil. Jesus explains there in verse 11 that the seed sown by Jesus is the good news word of God. It's the good news word that sinners can find forgiveness of sins in him alone. It's the good news word from Jesus who has authority to save from disease and death. It's the good news word that he alone gives knowledge of salvation to his people and guides our feet into the way of peace with God. It's the good news word that sinners can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. This is the good news word of God that Jesus is sowing as he sows these seeds. But depending on the soil of the human heart into which God's word is sown, Jesus says there's going to be a whole mixed bag of responses. This is where Jesus' explanation of his parable gives us great insight as to why Sunday to Sunday I can get up and preach the word and pour out my soul and it will land like this on people's hearts. It explains why your coworker that you've been praying for for the past five years and you've faithfully witnessed and shared the gospel, explained it clearly. They nod their heads. They grasp what you're saying. And they shrug their shoulders and say, no thanks. It's not a no thanks because they're confused. It's a no thanks with full cognition of what they're saying no thanks to. It's the soil of the human heart. Whether it's folks like the 12 disciples, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, many others who receive the good news, word of God's gospel, or the many who reject it, it all comes down to the soil of our heart. So we ask Jesus, will you teach us, please? And he says, yes. And that's where verse 12 comes in. Notice, starting in verse 12, Jesus says, the seed along the path, he's explaining his parable here, The seed along the path are those who have heard. So notice, in every scenario, it's someone who has heard the word of God. They've heard the good news word of God's gospel. But what happens for the seed that's sown along the path? The devil comes, takes away the word from their hearts. Notice the result. So that they may not believe and may not be saved. This is hard heart soil we bump into sometimes. It describes those who have heard the good news word of salvation in Jesus, yet their response to it all is just complete outright rejection. 
So as the gospel word lies on their hard heart like a seed lies on a hardened path, the devil comes, says Jesus, and takes this word, the seed of God's gospel, and pulls it from their hearts just like a bird that swoops down, grabs that seed, and pulls it away. And my hunch is that we all know someone who does not believe. I'm not saying they don't believe in Jesus as a historical figure. They just don't believe. They don't believe they need a Savior because they don't believe they're a sinner. And people who don't think themselves to be sinners don't need saviors. They don't believe in Jesus with a saving faith. Thus, they have no faith. Thus, they're not saved because their heart is hardened against God's gospel. Jesus then goes on and says, those might be some that we bump into. This explains why there are responses like this, people who just flat out, straight up, reject the gospel of God. He goes to verse 13, and he gives us another insight. He says this, here's some, describing the seed sown on the rock. This describes the heart soil of some. It's the seed of God's word, the God's gospel, is sown on rock. And who are these? It's people who, when they hear the word of God, so notice they also hear the word of God, they actually receive it with joy. So unlike the first one who just flat out rejected, they're like, okay, yeah, that's good. I like what you're saying here. But, says Jesus, notice this, there's no root to the word in their life, no root to this gospel. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, that's the key there, they fall away. So while some wrongly respond to the gospel because of hard heart soil, others do so because of rocky heart soil. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus' imagery here in the explanation of his parable explains it all. He says this, the soil of their heart is like a thin bit of topsoil on a bedrock of limestone. So when you see Jesus talking about the one sown in the rock, he's not talking about like a luscious black topsoil, like good central Illinois dirt with a few rocks sprinkled in. He's talking about like a multi-foot layer of bedrock limestone, and on top of that bedrock limestone, there's two inches of topsoil. So a seed will land on it, a seed will grow, there will be a little bit of moisture in there, but there's no way for that growth to take root and to get nourishments and nutrients and to withstand any kind of testing of wind or heat or rain that might come. It blooms fast and it's going to fade fast, says Jesus. Yes, that seed is going to sprout quickly in that soil, but because it has no roots, it's going to wither and die. Equally so, some people respond in the same way when they hear the word of God. They receive it with joy, says Jesus. You've probably seen this before. You share the gospel with someone. They hear it. They go, this is good news, like you say. They grasp it. They they like what you're saying. But then a month later, six months later, a year later, nowhere to be found. Decade later, what happened? Like, why are you not following Christ like you said? You were baptized. You made a confession of faith. What, what, where are you? What, what happened? How come you're no longer around? You don't love Jesus anymore. You say that with your lips. You don't love the people of Jesus. You say that with your actions. You're not in the Word. You're not in prayer. You don't gather. You don't scatter. You don't love the lost. You don't evangelize. 
You don't do these things anymore. Why? You received it with joy, but because that seed of God's word had no deepening root, Jesus says this is what's true of them. They believed some things for a while. There was, yes, maybe an intellectual assent, an intellectual acknowledgement. Yes, sinners need saviors, and I think I'm a sinner. So they're doing all this mental math. So they had an intellectual faith, but there was no true, genuine, deep-seated, saving faith. So they bloom quick, and they fade quick, and the fading quickly comes, notice, in times of testing, when the road gets tough. Perhaps they became disappointed with God because He is not the safety valve they imagined. Maybe they washed their hands of Jesus because He failed to be the spiritual genie that they were promised Jesus would be. Maybe it was opportunistic for a while to attach to Jesus. Or maybe Jesus was merely an intellectual exercise to begin with. But whatever the case, listening, when suffering for Jesus got real, when people began to punk them out because you're doing this whole Jesus thing now, they're like, yeah, I didn't think I was going to lose friends over this. When friends began to mock them behind their Backs, listen, when a spouse begins to lay down ultimatums, if you do this whole Jesus thing, I don't know that we're going to be good with each other anymore. When workplace sneers become too much. When this whole Jesus thing was just simply no longer convenient, what do people do? Eject. Done with the Jesus thing. Like, I was cool with Jesus as long as the Jesus thing made me cool. But I find out there's a lot of suffering that comes with following Jesus, yeah? Anyone here ever suffered for staking your claim with Jesus? Sign me up, man. I'm planting the Jesus flag over my life. I'm just telling you, the mocking and the jeers, the world will come. Times of testing will come that will ask you and challenge you. Do you really hold and cling to the Savior you say you love? Or are you going to pack up camp, fold in, and say, yeah, that was a bridge too far. Jesus says, many will say, that was a bridge too far. I don't want to go that way. I'm done with Jesus. In college, we had, Tara and I had two friends, two different separate family friends. Both are now divorced because the both of the husbands eventually cashed in on Jesus and said, we're just done with our marriage. Both abandoned wife and children. One couple in particular, were probably two in college, in the college ministry we're part of, one couple in particular were probably two of the most like, like if you want to see a serious Christian, look at these people. We're going into missions, and that was their long-term goal. That was the words that they would use. Like they're not like just like, you know, I just want to get a house and two and a half kids and a white picket fence and I'll throw Jesus a bone on a Sunday morning kind of people. They're like, we're serious about this. A decade removed, he's gone, he's done. Cashed in on his wife, cashed in on his kids, living around with another woman. Almost the exact same with another family friend. Went to go plant a church. Church is folded. It's done. No longer walking with Jesus. He's with some other woman, divorced. His kids have been left behind. Seminary. Had another family friend. Same kind of thing. Seemed legit seminary. Like, this is where the serious Christians go, right? 
One day the wife knocks on the door and says, I need help. It's come to light that my husband has been uh, drinking alcohol, getting drunk at night, passing out behind bars, spinning a tell of lies to try to explain that maybe he was working late or not working. He was in youth ministry, went to seminary to become a better youth minister, only to find out that his words now would be, it was all just a game. I was faking it. I was just doing it just to, just to do it. Cashed in, divorced wife, left his kids, no longer in ministry, living like hell. High school, had two friends, extremely intelligent, probably a, a man and a woman, probably the two smartest in high school. It was nice to be around them because I was very opposite of them in high school. It was nice to have friends who liked people in low places, me being one in the low place. Our high school was very not marked by people who were Christians. So it was me and another gal who were in our youth group were sharing with this man, with this woman, and they became very interested. We're like, this is, this is awesome. Started coming to our church, started coming to our youth group, went and bought themselves Bibles, started attending Bible studies with our pastor, asking a lot of questions. And then like one day, overnight, the guy woke up, and this, this man and this woman were dating one another, woke up and basically said, uh, I'm done with Jesus. Don't want anything to do with him. I think a lot of it had to do because he didn't want to die to self. He was wanting to have sex with this woman, and she was wanting as well. And when they became clear that the ultimatums of Christ meant we live according to his standard, not that he bows down and serves our standard, they drew a line in the sand as, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. They bailed out, gone, bloom fast, faded fast. Anyone else here have stories like this? Verse 14, Jesus gives us more. He says, we see thorny heart soil as well. As for the seed that fell among thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. In this mixture of responses, notice that the issue isn't pressure. I think if you want to summarize verse 13, look at the very end of verse 13. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. In other words, I think the pressure of life, the pressure of will I walk in holiness and obedience to Jesus, or will I do my own thing? The pressure of that situation leads them to go, boom, boom, done with Jesus. Don't want it. In verse 14, I don't think the issue is pressure, but it's this issue of preoccupation. What is biding for our time? What is biding for our attention? In other words, Jesus is saying that it is possible to have a thorny heart soil because the routine ebb and flow of life, in the midst of it all, Jesus just gets squeezed out of it all. It's not that there's some active animosity against Jesus and his gospel going on in verse 14. I don't think that's the case. It's more that the cares and riches and pleasures of life have a way of anesthetizing our soul so that our soul becomes numb to our need for a Savior and just the routine good things of life come 
choke out, and then the next thing you know, you're just saying, I don't know if I just really got time for Jesus. After all, the kids got this, and the husband needs that, and the wife needs this, and the bills need paid, and I need this, and this guy. And next thing you know, your calendar's exploding. It looks like a rainbow ink has ran all over your calendar on your Mac, and you're just, I'm going here, and I'm busy here, and I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. In the midst of all, Jesus is just choked out. He's just gone. I think out of the four soils, the soil that describes the trials and the temptations of most Christians is right here in verse 14. Jesus gets choked out by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. A person gets numb to Jesus as other stuff takes over. Personal cares about children, cares about mortgage payments, cares about health, cares about salary, cares about education, cares about achievement, and the like, they just distract us blind us to our need for Jesus. The desire for wealth, desire for career advancement, enhanced reputation in the world diverts our soul from Jesus. Many never bear genuine fruit in their life because of the distractions of entertainment. I can't tell you how many people are going to stand before Christ on the day of judgment and not hear, welcome to eternity with me, but hear, depart from me. I never knew you because they distracted their souls to hell with entertainment. The pursuit of entertainment takes time, and it's time that chokes Jesus out. Before they know it, love for Jesus choked out, love for a Jesus family choked out, love of prayer choked out, love of God's word choked out, love of neighbor choked out, Love of evangelism, choked out. Love of the gospel, choked out. But in contrast, notice that Jesus says there is good heart soil. That's what he says there in verse 15. As for the seed and the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience, honest and good heart. In other words, they're doing this. They're coming to the word and saying, I'm not trying to manipulate the word. I'm not trying to twist the word. I'm not trying to make Jesus be who I want him to be. I'm coming with an honest, good heart. I'm coming with this attitude of, man, I see what it's being said. It is having an impact on me. Hebrews 4, it's the double-edged sword. It's laying me open. It's exposing the dark corners of my heart. God's word is doing a miraculous work of exposing my need for a savior. It's doing what God says it would do. It's drawing me to Jesus, who is the Savior. God's Word is doing its work of salvation in my soul and showing me my need for Jesus. Jesus, that's good heart soil. That's good heart soil. You see it and you cling to it. You hold fast to it. So what are we to do? Listen up. Point number three, and we're done. Listen up, says Jesus. Take care how you hear the Word and do it. So take care. Take care. As I said earlier, how we hear the good news word of God as proclaimed by Jesus and then respond to this word determines everything. Look at me. How, you're, you're, Pastor, are you telling me this right here? The word of God. You're telling me this thing here? Like how I hear and respond to this determines everything? That's what I'm saying to you because that's what Jesus is saying to you. I mean, this is just ink on, on paper. You're telling me from Genesis to Revelation, God's word broadly, how I hear it and respond to it determines life and death. That's what I'm telling you. 
More specifically, you're telling me the good news word of the kingdom of God and how how I respond to this word on the lips of Jesus is going to determine whether I go to heaven or hell, whether I go and experience eternal life or eternal death, whether I go from death to... You're telling me how I respond to this matters? Jesus says, oh yeah, everything is determined by how we respond to the word. Listen, the good news, word of salvation in Christ alone is like a lamp, says Jesus, that is put on a stand. It is shining and it exposes our hearts and the truth that Jesus is proclaiming. The good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking is to be declared, it is to be heard, and it is to be obeyed. This is why Jesus, in verse 18, saints, says this, take care of how you hear. Don't play games with it. Take care how you hear. Taking care how you hear has to do with acting upon what has been heard and then bearing the fruit of repentance. After all, says Jesus in verse 21, this is the Jesus family trait, he says. This is the Jesus family trait. Do you want to know who my brothers and my my mother and my brothers are? Here is my family Those who hear the word of God and say, eh, whatever. Those who hear the word of God and say, actually, I'm going to twist that for my own gain. Those who hear the word of God and then wield it like a weapon to bludgeon other people with it. Those who hear the word of God and, what's it say? Do it. Obey it. So here's the question I have for you. We're done. Where are you? Where are you in regard to these things? With honest evaluation, which heart soil are you? The gospel of God proclaimed by Jesus reveals that the only hope of salvation is found in Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Savior. Simply hearing is not enough. Simply hearing is not enough. But hearing the word of Jesus and obeying it, friends, this is the right response to the Savior's salvation. So the question is, is it your response? If Jesus is saying the right response to his salvation is to hear this word and obey it, the question is, is this my response? Let's pray. Lord, we've been talking about hearing quite a bit this morning and hearing your word specifically. And we just have to admit that many words have been spoken with many opportunities to just hear many different things. And the honest thing is, Lord, we just might be a bit overwhelmed right now. Some of us might be asking, where in the world do I even begin with that? Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy upon us, would you just right now, with every heart here, speak clearly and reveal in your kindness to us, this is what I want you to wrestle with. This is the truth I want you to see. So that the other 99 things maybe that we heard could just take a back seat for now, but we concentrate on that one. 
not so that we can just simply hear it and go, yep, that's a good truth, but so that we might be obedient to it and do it, whatever it is that Jesus is calling us to do. Holy Spirit, in your kindness, would you help all those here this morning? Would you help us to walk in obedience, not in our own strength, but leaning on you? Weakness is our part. Strength is yours. Help us to lean on you for that strength to walk in obedience. Jesus, you are gentle, lowly, very compassionate, and very kind. And you call us to these things because this is where the good life is found, submitted in totality to you. So God, help us to embrace this truth with joy. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.